So I invite you to bow your heads with me. Let's pray together and ask for God's help this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. It is a precious treasure. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to be diligent students of it. That we would recognize that your words contain life because they are yours. Lord, there's no life apart from you, from your name. And we ask that you would help us to be eagerly hungering for righteousness and and diving into your word more and more in our own time just to see a glimpse of who you are, knowing that it's through the power of your grace that we are transformed. We ask that you would help us as we look at these genres to really understand how that helps us see the structure, help help us to understand what it is that you've communicated for us to, to know about who you are. And we ask that you would be glorified in this, that we would make much of your great name because of your word. We thank you and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So through this class, we've been talking a lot about the author's meaning and how important it is for us as students of God's word to really seek in our study to understand the author's intent. What is it that the author was writing for the original audience to understand? And part of this has come out of us really narrowing down what it is our goal is in studying God's word. It's really to gather up the context in our observation step to then go to interpret and understand God's word so that we can apply and live differently. And one of the phrases that keeps coming up in my study and hopefully through these lessons is that context is key. Context is key. It is important for us to understand if we are to study God's word for the purpose of knowing who God is rightly, we need to understand the context. And the context is the words, the language, the history, understanding the, the, literary, the literal, historical, grammatical context of each passage is what aids us in understanding what the author meant. It is what unlocks for us the understanding of the author's meaning. And so understanding that even saying context is key and looking at a lock pad and a key sounds like funny imagery, but today we're going to be talking about figurative speech. We're going to be talking about imagery and language that helps us to understand that context is key is just an example of ways that we use language today even to talk about figurative speech. But it is important for us to understand as students of God's word that we must understand God's words in context, when they were written, who was writing, and who was the original recipient. So for us, understanding that context is key that really drives us then to analyze and think through biblical genres. We want to understand how scripture was written. And for us, we must remember that in our studies that, that the same Holy Spirit, who is God, inspired the scriptures. Even though there's a diversity of genres there is a single unified storyline. Although the Bible has multiple writers and several genres, there is yet one cohesive unified message. It's many stories that tell one story of God saving his people and judging his enemies through Jesus Christ for his glory. But within God's revelation, we find different genres by which God has chosen to reveal himself to his people. And genre simply refers to different categories or types of literature. It's a way of classifying something according to its literary style. And biblical genres normally are identified by examining a book's structure, form, tone, the context, and even literary techniques that are used in the writing. 
And each genre follows a general set of rules that really aid us as readers in understanding the author's intended communication. But before we we get too far into our observation step, which is the first step we've talked about in our inductive Bible study method, we need to really um, recognize what is the genre of the literature in the Bible that I'm reading. This text has a specific genre, and we probably need, not probably, we definitely need to understand that early in our observation process to make sure we're making observations that are following the literary genre that the author was using so that we can observe, interpret, and apply. And three genres that are big headers of scripture that we find um, have been, that we've talked about, are narrative, poetry, and discourse. Narrative is a text that makes a point primarily by telling a story, and we looked at that last week, looking at the setting, the characters, and the plot. We've also mentioned poetry, which is uh, a text that normally, uh, that normal language is often modified to intensify its impact. And then also uh, discourse, which is a text that presents a logical sequence of ideas for the purpose of communication. So today we're actually going to be looking at this topic of poetry, biblical poetry. And I think what would be helpful is really just giving a bit of a contrast. It's interesting in scripture, poetry isn't just in the wisdom literature, but you find it throughout several different genres that it's inserted into. And one is in uh, the Exodus story. In the the, uh, climax event where um, God's people have left um, the land of Egypt, they are leaving and they are backed up to the Red Sea. And you see this narrative recounting of God's provision of a way through the Red Sea. And in Exodus 14, verses 21 and 22, God's word records in narrative style, saying, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand, and on their left. This is a narrative depiction of the event of the Red Sea. But just in the chapter later, you see what's referred to as Moses' song, the people's song in response to what God had done. And this is a poetic rendition of the same event. And you see this contrasting depiction that helps us understand what really is the flavor even difference between narrative and poetry. And to compare this, we would look right next to it in Exodus 15, 8, where the song writer would write, at the blast of your nostrils, Lord, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. Poetry is, is pointed It's powerful, and it penetrates down to the heart level. It ignites the imagination of the reader and invites them to ponder these towering truths through vibrant repetition. Biblical poetry is a a vivid depiction of powerful truths. Poetry beckons the reader's emotions and senses, and it moves us to both feel and understand these truths. Poetic writings in scripture often say a lot, but do it in a little number of words. They launch you into concrete word pictures rather than trying to argue through abstract ideas. Poetry is used extensively in the wisdom literature, which refers to Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Lamentations. 
But it's also tucked into many other books of the Bible, other genres. It pops up in the middle of narrative, as we saw in Exodus, and even in some of the epistles. And the prophets, especially in the Old Testament, often wrote in poetic form. Some different forms of poetry you will find in Scripture are blessings, curses, doxologies. There's hymns and laments. There's oracles, praises, proverbs. There's riddles, thanksgivings, woes, and even more. So when you come across these sort of poetic writings inserted into a book, it's really primarily understanding the genre that has been inserted, and we need to really pay careful attention. We ought to pay attention because the the author is doing something significant at that moment to point out a depiction of something that is important and powerful for us to comprehend. But in general, biblical poetry appeals to our God-given emotions that are rich with rich depictions of truth. And it does so through specific features that as students of scripture, we would benefit benefit from greatly to understand. So let's look at some uh, biblical poetry features today. We're gonna look at two primary features in biblical poetry, and those features are structure and figures of speech. First, we'll look at structure, which is really talking about how is biblical poetry organized? How does that really aid me in understanding the author's original message? We're also going to talk about figures of speech. So how can we then seek to understand the words and phrases being used by the biblical composers of poetry? So first this morning, we're going to look at the poetry feature of structure. Let's look at structure. One of the most um, obvious features, I think, about biblical poetry is its structure. Uh, When you open up the Psalms, you can see the lines of the text are distinct from maybe if you were opened up in Genesis in the historical narrative. This is intentionally done because ancient poetry would have stood out to the, in the original language. In our culture, the most common forms of poetry involve rhyming words, and there is kind of an expected meter or cadence to those words. But in God's providence, Hebrew poetry was not written in the same way as our poetry is today. Biblical poetry does not revolve around rhyming words, but rather it's around rhyming ideas. And this this idea of rhyming words is referred to as parallelism. Parallelism is one of the most prominent features in biblical poetry. It's really just the coupling of phrases, which is used by the inspired authors to reiterate or amplify and contrast concepts through verbal art. And though there are many different types of parallelism throughout Scripture, there is really a general structure that informs us how to better study biblical poetry. And in parallelism, this is really split up into two main sections. So the poetic writings in Scripture really weren't based on sentences and paragraphs, but rather they're based on lines. And so parallelism is split up into two general lines. Line A would be an, an idea that is introduced, and in line two, or line B, rather the idea would be amplified in several different ways that we're going to look at this morning. So there's typically two lines, but just so you know, in general, we're not trying to fit every text into one set of parallelism. There can be a variety of lines. There can be four lines. There can be eight lines. A lot of times they use this tool in many different ways, but I think it's helpful for us to see the basic structure. An idea was introduced and then amplified, and we're going to look at four different ways today. 
Four different ways that these ideas that were then uh, introduced were amplified. First, we're going to look at how oftentimes the poetic writers of Scripture would use the second line of a passage to emphasize the first. This is where the author takes two synonymous statements to rather highlight the idea. There is close similarity between the lines, but it's repeated for more emphasis. And we see this as an example in Psalm 27.1. This psalm is written by David, and he starts by saying, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And our, our eyes are captured in understanding the parallelism when we just see it laid on top of each other of who the Lord is for me and also how I'm to respond to this truth about who God is. And then he says the same phrasing again of the Lord and how that relates to my life and how I'm supposed to live in light of that. And the, it starts with the Lord and it ends without being afraid. But in the middle, you see a synonymous statement that is most meant to emphasize what it is the psalmist is getting at by saying that the Lord is my light and my salvation. And there's a picture that is taken and saying that he is the stronghold of my life. He's a fortress. Some, this provides security and safety, which is why I have a foundation for saying I have no reason to be afraid. And this is helpful for us as we understand poetry to see how there can be parallel ideas that are meant to emphasize a central idea that was introduced. But not only is there emphasized ideas, but there's also completed ideas. And this is where the author seeks to conclude a thought that has been begun in the previous line. An example of this would be Psalm 119, verse 9. The author writes, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. So he introduces it, the idea with a question. And then he comes along in the second line and answers that question to say, you're begging the question and you're giving instruction, but you're doing it through a question-answer method. And so he's introducing how can we actually live in a way that is pure in God's sight. And he's saying the answer is by living according to, gar living according to God's word. And so you see this sort of parallelism in the poetry, especially in um, Psalm 119. There's a lot of answer back to questions. Also, not only is there ideas completed, but there's also ideas that are developed this is where the second line advances further the idea that's presented in the first. An example of this would be in Psalm 121, verse 3. Scripture says, He will not let your foot be moved, referring to the Lord. And then he says, He who keeps you will not slumber. And we don't see the same exact structure laid out, but the idea hasn't changed. It hasn't really completed. There's no necessary end to it here. But you see that he's actually moving forward in the same thought. He's saying that the Lord will not let your foot be moved. What does he mean by that? Well, he's saying, he who keeps you, which is not letting your foot be moved, will not slumber. That it's not dependent on my action, but rather the Lord is the one who's not taking time off. He's not um, clocking out at any point. But he's moving forward with the idea that God is the one who's providing this security, this protection, this provision. So this is an example of really where parallelism is shown to develop further the idea that was introduced. But lastly, I wanted to give an example of where um, there can be contrast, where an idea is contrasted in the second line. And this is where the later line speaks to the opposite of the former idea. And this is really done to, to compare the two drastically to draw out the emphasis. Some examples of this would be in Proverbs 
uh, 15, 15. The author writes, all the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. He's giving an example here, and you can see the contrast really locked up in the word but. He's, he's saying, this is very different from what I just said, but it's supposed to draw this wide gap in between them to see the difference of what truth is being presented. So he contrasts the evil with the cheerful heart that has a continual feast. Another example would be Proverbs fifteen sixteen, the very next verse. Rather than using the word but to contrast two ideas, he says, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble with it. So he's contrasting by saying this is better than this which isn't as good. And he's showing that sort of contrast to help us draw a quick truth and understanding what is this proverbial truth that's being communicated. So there are just, these are just some examples of parallelism. And as you study through and read through biblical poetry, it's important to note that the poets were creative in the way that they used parallelism. And there's multitude of ways in which they deployed it. So don't try to fit this into a, a one-shoe-fits-all type of activity of studying through poetry, but, but rather going to say, help me to understand, Lord, how this structure was deployed as the author was thinking about writing this song or composing this lyric. Sometimes there's more than two lines, and sometimes they even invert the phrasing of parallelism. So don't try to constrain a text to a specific type, but use this pattern of parallelism to help you detect how the songwriters were composing each lyric. Seek to see how they were compounding and contrasting ideas to create a united symphony that's anchored to a central melodious truth. And as you study the poetry of Scripture, identifying the structure through the ideas presented will aid you greatly in understanding the original author's meaning. But seeking to identify the concepts, uh, these concepts ought to be pursued through understanding the words that were specifically penned by the writer. And this brings us to the second feature of biblical poetry, that is figures of speech. The genre of poetry primarily seeks to communicate through figurative imagery. And as one writer put it, they they stated this about biblical poetry. They said, they do not write essays, they paint pictures. And that's so true of poetry in scripture. The songwriters and poets of scripture would often use figures of speech. And we do the same in our language today, even in normal communication as well. So for an example, um, we have experienced this last week, a temperature drop, right? We would say it got pretty cold earlier last week, and we have a certain emotion that's tied up with cold temperature. And typically, unless you're an Eskimo, it's not very positive. But when we use that word in a relationship, we say so-and-so was really cold toward me today. We don't mean that they blew an AC fan on me when they walked by the room, but we mean there's, there's a feeling that's tied up with that word, and we're using it figuratively. And it would be the same for warm. When the, when the weather's warm outside and we feel the warmth of the sun, there's a certain emotion that gets stirred up with that. And we use that same. And we, we, we tie those words together. And we're not using it in its normal sense, but we are using it in a way that's clear in communication to say, so-and-so was so warm when they greeted me today. We know what that means because we're using it in a sense that helps communicate something that is um, conveying an emotion for an example of figurative speech. So we use words outside, this is what figurative speech is, we use words outside their ordinary normative context to help communicate specific ideas. 
So likewise, the authors of biblical poetry are conveying real thoughts, real events and emotions. They're literal truths, and they do it through the expression of figurative language. There are some who fear labeling any part of scripture as figurative language is to deny its truthfulness. But the pursuit of understanding scripture correctly must include figures of speech as a form of literal communication. The error would rather be for us to take rigidly what is meant figuratively, or to take figuratively what, it was, what is intended to be understood in a straightforward way. So as a definition, we would say that a figure of speech is a word or phrase that is used to communicate something other than its most natural and fundamental meaning. Figures of speech are not um, cryptic words meant to sort of produce this confusion with the audience, but they're actually colorful images that are meant to provide clarity. And that being said, we must remember that figures of speech are meant to be understood within their cultural context. Um, if there was a foreign exchange student who was learning English as a second language, they may not understand every phrase that we say in English. For example, if a student was talking to this foreign exchange student, they might say, man, that homework was a piece of cake. And they would kind of tip their head sideways saying, well, what do you mean that was a piece of cake? Is this a culinary class? Like, how do I get signed up? I mean, that sounds really fun. But what they, don't, what they don't mean is a literal piece of cake. What they mean is that rather it was very easy for them to accomplish. Similarly, we can sometimes be lost on phrases in scripture due to our disconnection from the original audience. So knowing you are studying a text that is uh, specifically the genre of poetry should alert you to watch for frequent unusual word usage. And that allows um, that although it is most prevalent in poetic writings, rather, it is also used in other genres as well. You'll see it a lot in um, the sermons. You'll see it a lot thrown into conversations that are in the middle of narrative and in uh, the prophet writings as well. So although there are a, an innumerable amount of figures of speech, exaggeration is one that we're very familiar with. And in literature, that's referred to as hyperbole. This is used to emphasize an emotion through an overstatement. So an example of this would be Psalm 40, verse 12. The poet writes, For evils have encompassed me beyond number. And we know what he's communicating there is that there's this overwhelming feeling of an innumerable amount of evils that have surrounded me. And we can relate to that feeling and that emotion that's being depicted through a specific overstatement. He's not overwhelmed to the point that he doesn't know how to communicate or, or using some sort of um, literal statement to say, I just couldn't count them, but rather to say, I'm depicting through hyperbole this, this emotive state that I feel in this moment. And that's called hyperbole. We would also um, understand simile. A simile is a type of metaphor, um, and a simile is really a comparison of phrases through using words um, such as like or as. So a familiar one would be Psalm 42.1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. That's a simile, using the word as to compare a picture with an explanation. And beyond simile would just be the category of metaphor, which is really um, a direct statement that's comparing to. So different from simile, it doesn't use like or as, but it's direct using the words like is or are. So Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd. That's a metaphor. And you see that metaphor depicted through the entire psalm of what does the psalmist mean by the Lord is my shepherd? And he draws out through that psalm. 
but he's not trying to say that the Lord is um, one who tends over sheep, specifically, literally. He's not saying that we're the sheep and he's the shepherd. He's using that as a picture to show his provision and his care and his love for his people. If we try to go to this text and say, the Lord is my shepherd, which means I am a sheep, we would fall into a category of bad hermeneutics, okay? Some of you were too sheepish to laugh at that, so, okay, I digress. But the other example of a metaphor fits with that, to say Proverbs seventeen twenty two: a joyful heart is good medicine. A joyful heart is good medicine. These are metaphors we find throughout the poetry in Scripture. We also would see a figure of speech called mirism, which has been helpful in my study to understand this category where there's really a totality of an idea that is referenced by stating two contrasting parts of the whole. So an example of this would be Psalm 139.2, where the, um, David writes saying, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. So he's saying God has a knowledge about him and he summarizes his total knowledge about himself by saying, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. And he's not restricting God's knowledge to those individual moments of sitting and standing, but rather he's conveying the totality of God's knowledge over all his actions. And this is called mirrorism, where they take two portions of something and try to show the beginning and the end of it to say God is over all of it, not just these two individual. So mirrorism is a figure of speech that helps communicate the totality of something. We also see in scripture personification. Personification is ascribing human characteristics or actions to non-human entities. Proverbs 1.20 describes wisdom in this way. It says, wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. This is personification, but when it is directly describing God, there's another term, another figure of speech that's called anthropomorphism. And this is specifically making a representation of God with human features or characteristics. This is where scripture refers to God with fingers or an arm or his ear or eyes. The prophets would often communicate this way as well. Isaiah 53, 1 says, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And this isn't saying that the Lord has a, a physical arm, referring to God's arm here, but there's a, a anthropomorphism that is being used to help communicate God's strength. And you'll see that in the context as it's described. But not only do we see um, really these categories of figures of speech, to understand the categories is helpful. But what we need to discuss further is how do we actually identify figures of speech in Scripture? What, what sort of structure or tools can we use to really ID these as we're reading through God's word? And it's not really um, honest or true biblical interpretation for us to call something a figure of speech simply because we don't understand it um, or we don't want to believe it, but rather God's word is perfect and true in every word it says. God has a reason for everything he says, where he says it, when he says it, to whom, and even how he says it. Figures of speech in the Bible are precise and intentional communication. They're not random or haphazard. But identifying figures of speech starts with assuming and checking if the normal and plain sense makes sense. The plain things are the main things, and the main things are the plain things, is often referred to in studying scripture. And we need to look for the plain sense in the immediate context. So step one in identifying figures of speech would be one, to check the natural sense. Does this make sense strictly in a, a normal definition of these words? 
So we should presume the normal nature of the sense of the word. And if it does make natural sense, it should be that conclusion. But we also need to ask questions of the phrase, ask questions of the poetry and the parallelism in the text. We need to ask questions such as, does the natural meaning require an impossibility or an absurdity? Those are helpful questions for us to decipher. Is this something that is um, a figure of speech? But we also wanna look for key words. Already we've seen that um, a contrasting word like the word but, or if you're looking for like or as, or is and are, those are helpful little words clues for you as you study through scripture to say, is it justified to understand this as a figure of speech according to the original author? Does he give clues in how he's comparing and contrasting and presenting these ideas? So those should be identifiers for us as we, as we look at um, poetic uh, passages of scripture. But we also, thirdly, uh, want to check the context for an explanation. We want to look to see if the expression is followed by clarifying details. And oftentimes that's what's most helpful in identifying figures of speech is the author will actually tell you what they meant. They give you a picture and then they explain the picture to make sure there's not this sort of, you can fit the puzzle pieces in your own and make this imagery whatever you want it to be. And you see this in um, the stories that Jesus tells even in his parables. He's, he's telling a picture and he's painting it and then he tells you exactly how he's applying it. And oftentimes we go to the parable, we skip the explanation and we import a lot of foreign ideas to what Jesus was seeking to communicate to the audience. So it's helpful for us to understand the context of the um, looking for the, in the context for an explanation from the author. And then lastly, if we do see these key words and it seems like you know, the, no, the natural sense doesn't make the most sense, we ought to check the context. If we see an explanation, then we need to go through and really identify three primary things. We need to identify the uh, image, the object, and the comparison. How are these two compared? So we would look at the image, what is the picture that's painted, the object, what is the image referring to, or it's called the referent, and then how are they um, contrasted and compared? What is the explanation that helps us understand this picture that's being painted by the author? So let's go through an example, an example that we're familiar with, a text that um, I'm sure many of you know, but I want to help you see that our, our understanding of this text is not just because somebody told it to us, but because of the words that the author actually used. So Isaiah 53, 6 starts out by saying, all we like sheep have gone astray. And we would look through in our steps to understand, okay, does the natural sense make the most sense? Are there any key words that kind of trigger me to think about this being a figure of speech? And we would find one here. We would say, okay, the word like is present in this text. It seems like the word is the, that like is present, not seems like it is present, and that there's a comparison drawn between a group and sheep. And so I would go through and just say, okay, now I need to check, is there an explanation that helps me understand this simile that appears to be present in the text? And if you keep reading, scripture says, we have turned every one to his own way. And so we'd say, okay, there's a word that's used for simile and these two groups that are contrasted with a picture, an image, and an object, and there's an explanation. So I should go through, bring out my notepad, and look for these three objects, or these three categories, rather, to help me identify what it is the figure of speech that the author was meaning to communicate and use. So we would look through and we'd say the image that's present here is sheep. So I would say the image, the picture that's being painted is one of a sheep. And the object that, that is being compared to, it says, all we are like the sheep, and that we have been the ones who turn. And he's saying every one, every 
every individual of this group. And so the object is this group of people. We'd have to look further in the context to say, is he just talking about Israel? Is he talking about all nations? Is he talking about all people? What is it that he's communicating in this text, which we could look further at, but we really just need to, at this point, just grab the object. He's talking about an entire group of people, and he's comparing them to sheep. And so lastly, I look and say, okay, what is it that the author says is drawn out as the comparison between these two groups? And the key is, he looks right there to say, he says, these, these people, like sheep, have gone astray. And in his explanation, he says, we also, like the sheep, have turned everyone to his own way. And he's saying that we have, we have turned into our rebellious, wayward path away from God, and we're not following, and, and this is really contrasted, he says, from God's way, in which he does in redeeming his people by becoming one of them and dying in their place. But I think it's really important for us to recognize these figures of speech ought to be clearly seen from the text. We can't just import a picture or even definitions into a picture that help us understand a text and just coming up with what we think about sheep from this text and how dumb they are or how they flip over on their back and cry for help. I mean, we can, we can import tons of different ideas, but if it's foreign to the author's explanation, we're not going to get what the author was seeking to communicate. And so it's important for us to really look in the context to define these figures of speech that the authors were using. And lastly, what I wanted to mention with figures of speech um, is really to understand that there's a, 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 a false or a, uh, a fallacy sometimes that we fall into is thinking once we understand a word picture that all the authors of scripture through all the books of the Bible are using that picture the exact same way. And we can't presume that. We can't presume that. And this is a great example because the very next verse in verse 7, Isaiah writes saying, uh, referring to um, this, this passage in verse 7, he says, he was oppressed, referring to the Messiah that would come. He was oppressed, the suffering servant, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So he's using the same image, right? He's, he's saying sheep is referring to the suffering servant and sheep is referring to all these people, but the comparison is different and the object is different. So I can't just say every time I see a word picture or a figure of speech that uses this same picture or image is gonna conclude the same comparison. I need to let the text speak for itself. And so a lot of times you see this in the New Testament too where leaven is used. Sometimes leaven, that leavens the whole lump, this is yeast, is something that is seen as a good thing and sometimes it's used as a bad thing, but it's a picture and the author is explaining what the picture is supposed to mean. And so help, that's helpful for us and, and constricts us to not import a singular image and understanding from one text and define it in every way that that, that, word, that picture sheep is used, for example, in scripture. So a word picture or an image um, does not always carry the same meaning, but must be defined by the immediate context the author was using. So hopefully these are helpful tools for you as you continue your own personal study. I hope that this is stirring up in you a love for God and his word, because ultimately this is, this is not some sort of just intellectual information that's supposed to be, oh, cool, I can talk about God's word and poetry and all this fun stuff, but rather it's supposed to drive you deeper to say, who is God? And I want to understand how he's clearly communicated from his word so that I might live differently. 
And I hope this is transforming your prayer time and your Bible reading as well, to understand that God's word is not something that just some intellectual scholars are supposed to be able to study and understand, and they're just delivering a message to you. That's a big part of the Reformation, is putting a Bible in everyone's hands to say God's word is written for God's people to know, believe, and understand. And I hope that this is encouraging you and equipping you to be able to do that on your own time as well. So next week, we're going to continue our study through biblical genres, and we're going to look specifically at the category of discourse. So with that, you'll be dismissed, and we'll see you back here at 1030 for our worship service together.